The scripture reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 36 and Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. Please follow along in your bulletins, in your Bibles, or on the screen above. Hear now the word of God. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Good afternoon, New Mercy. How's it going? It's going good. Just talking to myself. All right. Um, so I want to introduce myself. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Chris, and I am the intern pastor here at New Mercy. Uh, I've been an intern pastor for a little over a year. And at the start of this year, uh, we launched a new ministry called the Singles Young Adult Ministry. Um, and yeah, I guess it's fitting that they've asked me to preach on this subject as I am a single, unmarried person. Um, but uh, before we begin, can you uh, bow with me in prayer? Uh, Lord, we thank you for today. Um, God, we thank you that uh, you have created us to be in relationship with one another. And God, that you restore broken relationships because you made us into a right relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, won't you teach us today, God, how to extend our love to one another as you ask us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, it's uh, actually, it's uh, my privilege to uh, launch this new sermon series, as you see up on the banner. And uh, it's going to be called Greater Things in Relationships. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about how we can achieve greater things in relationships. And we're going to be going into topics such as greater things in relationships as husbands and fathers, and as, or as mothers and wives. But today, we're going to be focusing on greater things in relationships as a single. But before we begin, it's important to define what a single person is in terms of the biblical point. It's important to see what kind of value the Bible gives to a single person. And, and to put it simply, a single person means, in the Bible, just means that you're not married. It doesn't matter if you're dating or not dating, you know, if you have a girlfriend or not. Um, it doesn't matter if you're engaged or not. If you're not married, if you haven't made that vow before God, you're a single person. And it's from this perspective that this message is going to be preached. 
So when we look at the first text in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we see that Paul is saying, you know, that the ones who are married are concerned with the things of his wife or her husband. You know, I think there's a popular song that you guys may know that kind of, they kind of try to touch upon this topic. Let me know if you, if you guys understand it or if you remember it. It goes something like, uh, I have many concerns in this life, 99 to be exact. But one of those responsibilities is not to love my wife in the way that Christ loves the church. You guys remember that song? No? All right. I mean, it's a little bit uh, more explicit than that. But Also, you got you know. All right. But, you know, I like the language that Paul uses when he talks about um, concerns about your wife. Like, uh, I need to please my wife. I need to, um, you know, that's my concern in this world. But I don't think that Paul is saying that being married to one another and loving your wife or your spouse or your kids, that's not the Lord's affairs, right? He's saying that singles, that this is a valid way of living. You know, in the Old Testament context, the Jewish people, a single person had really no place in society. They had no place in the church. Um, sing, uh, you know, having children was always a blessing. You know, God gives the command, be fruitful and multiply, right? God appoints Abraham to be a father of many nations. And his wife, Sarah, when she's barren, she can't have a kid, it's looked at as a bad thing. So in that context... Yeah, it was, it was not good to be single. They, they didn't know what point it was. They didn't know what, where they, they stand in. Uh, first slide, please. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Next slide, please. And later on in Corinthians, Paul says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So you see, this whole chapter, Paul is talking about the theology of being single versus being married. And he's not saying one is a greater gift. He's simply saying, this is your assignment. Whatever assignment you're called to live in, you need to live in a way that glorifies God. So it's interesting because... Like I said, in this context, singleness was not a valid way of life. Um, Historians all can agree that Paul is actually making a radical statement. Uh, Next slide, please. It says, singleness was a radical idea in Paul's time. To stay single was to carry a stigma for your whole life and to risk dying in abject poverty. But not only was singleness okay in the early church, it was encouraged Historians argue the early church was the first movement ever to hold out singleness as a viable way of life. So when I think about the cultural context of the Jewish people, and then I think about our context, I see some similarities. You know, as a single person, sometimes, if you're not in a relationship, you know, the people close to you, around you, you know, in all, they mean well, but sometimes they say, you know, when are you going to get married? You know, you're getting too old, you know. Um, If you wait too long, you're not going to have a place. You need, people need to grow up and get married, right? But on the other hand, society also says, celebrate your singleness, right? They say, oh, you have all this freedom now. You can do whatever you want. You can sleep around with anyone you want. You ha- you're, you're not tied down. You, have, you don't have any concern for any person, and you can live as you want. But then as we see this text, the Bible teaches that for the first, for the first one, they would say that 
no, you do. Singles do have a place in the church. Singles have a place in society and God's kingdom. In fact, you can glorify God through it. And the second context where, you know, the society says singles should be living their lives in whatever they, way they want, Paul says, no, singles should be living in that freedom to glorify God because now they have the freedom to go and be concerned about the Lord's affairs. So in this uh, sermon, I want to explore two themes, two themes of love, of God's love, and it's, it's called exclusive love versus inclusive love. So exclusive love is that personal, that deep, intimate love um, that God shows us. Uh, you know, when God, he meets us through Jesus Christ for the first time in our life, and it's so personal, and it's like, okay, I want to be in a relationship with you, God. That's that deep connection, that intimate connection, which I call, which is called exclusive love. And we see this theme in all throughout the Bible. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God makes a covenant with the Israelites and says, I will be your God and you will be my people, simply because I love you. You know, there's all these other people groups and nations, but I'm going to choose you to love and I'm going to be your God. So that is the Old Covenant. That's the exclusivity of God's love for his people. And in this exclusive love, on, in earth, I believe that the closest relationship that resembles exclusive love is in the, in the relationship of marriage. You know, as husbands love their wives, as Christ loved the church, it's that example of exclusive love. I'm going to be committed to this person. I'm going to be devoted to this person, to sickness and in health. You know, richer for a poorer, I'm, I'm committed to this person. But then on the other hand, we have this theme of inclusive love. Right? When... The gospel is not just a gospel just for the Jewish people. It's for all people. The gospel is made available for all who accept Christ as their Savior. And this is a common theme in the Bible. There's always there's this beautiful imagery of inclusive love throughout the Bible. You know, Jesus is always reaching out to those on the margins. Jesus is always reaching out for those who are the outcast. That's why when we hear, when we hear about the, the story about the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, we see Jesus' heart for, the, for his inclusive love for all people. At that time, in the Jewish culture, Jewish people and Samaritans, they hated each other, right? But, Jew, uh, but, Jewish, but Jesus goes and extends his love to a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is also a loose woman. She's been around. She's had many husbands. A righteous person would not have been caught dead seen with a Samaritan woman. Instead, Jesus offers her living water. Jesus offers her salvation. And so this imagery is so beautiful that Jesus reaches the lowest of the lowest in society. He hangs out with the tax collectors, the lepers, the prostitutes, and the sinners. Next slide, please. And in the New Testament, they talk about this theme of inclusive love. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Next slide, please. In James, it says, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, 
my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So you see in these two verses, Jesus' love, God's love, he's saying that it's for all people, it's for all cultures, and it's for all people of all statuses, rich or poor, it's for all people. And I believe that as singles, this is our strength, that we have the strength to display inclusive love for God's people. This is where, we, where our strength lies, because we ha- are not committed and devoted to one person in that covenantal relationship. Yet, I think one thing that we all have to agree, whether you're single or not, that we have a desire for exclusive love. And that's not a bad thing. A lot of times we may think it's a bad thing when we think about marriage and we think about, you know, finding a husband or wife. We say, oh, you know, God will take care of it and everything, and then we try to act holy. But that desire is, is a good thing. That re- we are all created to long for relationships, I mean, particularly that of being marriage, right? It's the, it's the closest thing that resembles on earth Christ's love for the church. Why wouldn't we want to experience that? Why wouldn't we want to experience something that resembles that? And furthermore, why wouldn't we want to ex- ex- uh, experience the, the physical intimacy of sex that goes along with it in a covenantal ma- marriage? So although the gift of singleness should be acknowledged, it's just as important to acknowledge that we desire relational intimacy. We desire exclusive love. You know, in Genesis, when um, Eve was made, uh, God says, it is not good for, me, for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A lot of times, this passage is used in the context of, you know, husband and wife. But what I see is that God saw that it was not good for people to be alone, that we were meant to be in community. Just as God is in community with himself, as God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to reflect that, and it's not good for us to be alone. Even secular studies show that as single people, we are desiring that intimate relationship and the continuity of it. Next slide, please. Peter J. Sign, a sociologist I was reading on, says this. The greatest need single people feel in their departure from traditional family structure is for substitute networks of human networks of human relationships that provide the basic satisfactions of intimacy, sharing, and continuity. So this is why it's so important for the church to be this community, right? Because singles are looking for this community. They're, they're looking for these kind of relationships. Which leads me to my next point that the, for all Christians, the primary family is actually the church, the body of believers. And this is, this is biblical, you know, in um, Mark 12, Jesus is asked what happens in, you know, are people married in heaven? And Jesus says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And again, in Matthew 12, when uh, the disciples go, you know, Jesus, your mom and your, bro- your brothers are here. Jesus says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he points to his disciples and says, the one who does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. So you see, all of us had the same father. We all belong to the same father, so we are his children. So our identity is important as children of God, and that's the way that we need to view each other. We need to view each person 
This is my brother in Christ. This is my, single, this is my sister in Christ for those who are single. <clears throat> but oftentimes, we don't look at each other that way, right? Oftentimes, we, we want relationships to really just gratify our own desire for exclusive love. So the church, we need to be a place, a community, where it resembles the primary family. It resembles this primary family where the community can embrace all singles for who they are. You know, I mean, it sounds, this sounds great. You know, this sounds in theory and ideally it, it sounds great. But honestly, it kind of sounds like singles still gets the short end of the stick. Like, do we still not to get to experience deep levels of love? <clears throat> and I don't think that's true. You know, when we look at this Ephesians text, you know, Ephesians 3, I believe that it's saying that the more our relationships strive to display God's inclusive love, the more we'll be able to grasp the width, the depth, heights, and lengths of his love. You know, it says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So when you think about knowing God's love that surpasses knowledge, that's a weird thing that Paul says. I want you to know something that requires more than knowing. But, so if I ask you, what do you know about God's love? Yeah, you may say, okay, God, he sent his son, and he came down, Jesus came down as a man, uh, healed a bunch of people, loved a bunch of people, and then ultimately died on the cross for sins and for people's salvation. So cognitively, that might make sense to you. But in order to grasp God's love, that personal love, it has to be a personal encounter with God, right? In order to fully get it, you need, to, you need to have God come and have a personal encounter with you. And that's when your life is transformed. That's when you fully get it. So there's a difference. So each person's experience, yeah, it's important. All of our experiences are important in encountering God's love. But also our experience is very limited. It's only a sliver of the reality of God's immense love. So then Paul comes back and when he says that, that you may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people. I believe he's saying that it is a collective experience of all of God's people, of all the church, to see how God has impacted your life. You know, for me, when I, uh, you know, when I started kind of following God, uh, one of the things that happened to me was my circle of friendships grew. Uh, in high school, I always hung out with the same people, um, College, we went to Rutgers, so same people. We graduated, lived in the same house, same people. And actually some people, some of the same friends are still here at New Mercy, you know. But as I got deeper in my faith, um, God put it in my heart to make relationships with all different types of people. And this has really expanded my knowledge, my grasp of the fullness of God's love. For example, I, I have a friend who's a sister um, that normally I probably, outside of the church, I never would have made friends with. When I got to hear a testimony of how she's always felt like she was an outcast, where she was always an outsider, and I got to see how God is working in her life and how God actually dispelled all the lies that she's not worth it, she's not valuable of what people said, I get to see another part of God's heart, and I'm like, wow. But then what does that mean, though? 
Does that mean that we're not allowed to have close and deep relationships? You might, you might ask me, Kristen, what happened to your friendships? What happened to those, to those uh, boys of yours? And, and also, what about your relationship with your girlfriend? You've been dating someone for over a year. Why are you doing that? You should be just displaying inclusive love, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's what God is saying. You know, when I look at the relationships at New Mercy, and I see the deep friendships that are made here, you know, I'm really blessed. I see the fruitfulness of it. I saw an Instagram video of a sister the other day, and her friend was coming back from a long trip, and she was dancing up and down, and she was like, my friend is back. And she was so excited, and I found that, you know, so adorable. (laughs) But what I'm seeing is not just that, but I'm seeing these deep friendships actually mold one another to know God more and to love God more. And so these relationships are awesome. When you even look at Jesus' ministry, his relationships, the time that he invested with people, were a very few circle of friends, wasn't it? But then did Jesus just stop there? What if he didn't stop for the Samaritan woman? No, Jesus, yeah, he spent a lot of time with the disciples, but he also made the time to stop for all of those who were, who were on the fringes. You know, when I see the singles at New Mercy, you know, I'll be honest, I'm very blessed. Um, I see the singles serving really tirelessly and thanklessly. Um, you know, you see the YCS program. You know, it's mostly singles who go out. You know, missions programs, education department. You know, you guys are awesome and, and serving God. So it's clear that you guys, in this assignment of being single, you do want to, you know, take ownership of it. And you do want to glorify God. But my question to you guys is, what about in your relationships? What about in your relationships with each other in the church? How are you being inclusive? How are you being inclusive to to, to the people around you? You know, Jesus says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, for your love for one another. You know, it has to start here. It has to start with this family, this primary family of believers. But honestly, this sounds like a daunting task, doesn't it? Loving the broken people of our church. You know, five years ago when we launched New Mercy, we had the tagline, Church for the Broken. And I remember the, you know, Pastor Key, he was sharing that, be ready to be uncomfortable. Be ready to be uncomfortable. When you're worshiping, you're going to be sitting next to some people who are extremely broken and you'll be uncomfortable. When he shared that with me, I kind of envisioned, okay, behind me there's going to be like a prostitute. On my left, there's going to be, like, a guy who just got out of jail for murder. That's, that's just what I was envisioning. And I was like, oh, that sounds exciting. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I might be uncomfortable, but just that's an awesome image. But then when I look around, what do I really see? I, I don't see that, right? But the truth of the matter is, what, what, when we really look at it, what I see is broken people. I see annoying people. I see strange people. I see people that I don't want to get to know and love. I don't know, some of you guys might be thinking, um, yeah, the guy speaking right now, he's one of those people, but that's okay. I mean, I agree. That's why I'm preaching this message, so that we can be inclusive as a community. But if you really want to think about it, it does make us uncomfortable. I mean, think about just someone here in the congregation that you're sitting with, and think about talking to that person outside for a minute. How uncomfortable do you feel, right? Not your close group of friends, but someone outside of that. I take it a little bit further. Now think about grabbing dinner with that person for an hour. 
Think about being friends with that person. Think about being invested in their lives and their issues. Uh, that, that makes us feel very, very uncomfortable. So the question is, then, how do we display this inclusive love? It seems like such a hard task. You know, in the Ephesians text in 16 through 17, I believe Paul, you know, this is what he says. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, the Father, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, and then he goes on. You know, we can't love one another just based on our own ability to love. It's just not possible. And Paul knows it. But he also knows, and he's praying on, the, on behalf of the church of Ephesus and saying that God the Father will strengthen you through the Holy Spirit because Christ lives in us and that we will be rooted in love so that we can love one another. You know, but I think one thing that we need to do as a church and as a body of believers is just confess, just just admit, be, be real with yourselves, with each other, and with God, and say, you know, I can't love my brother, I can't love my sister. It's just, I can't do it. You know, a lot of times when we think about how we fail in God's law, it kind of brings us shame. It, it, it brings us in a place of, I don't want to come to him. You know, but I saw recently on my friend's Instagram feed, she has uh, two daughters, one's five years old and one's two years old. The two year, uh, in the video, the two-year-old's in the background, and she's holding this stuffed animal, and she's so happy. But in the front of the video, the five-year-old daughter, he's, she's pleading with her mom in tears. She's got her hands like this. She's saying, Mommy, I don't know how to share. It's so hard being a big sister. All right, that's a horrible impression, but let me show you, let me show you later. It was, abs- it was adorable. It was cute. But what I got out of that is, So clearly the mom, she made a rule. She made a rule for the daughter. And she said, in order to be a big sister, you need to share your toys. You must. But the daughter comes to her and says, Mom, I can't. I don't want to share. And that means it's hard being a big sister. But how does the mom respond to this kind of, um, you know, groveling? Does she say, yeah, you're pretty bad at being a big sister. You suck. You're the worst daughter. No, she doesn't. She delights in her daughter, right? She delights in her daughter. She's so proud of her daughter daughter that she would come to her in that kind of dependence, and she posted up on social media. But it's funny, but it's in the same way. That's how our God, our Father in heaven, that's how he would respond to our dependency, our genuine heart of saying, God, I don't know how to love my brother and sister. That means I'm not a good Christian. That means it's hard being a disciple. You know, God wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants the real us. He doesn't want the fake, holy us. He wants us to come as we are, right, in our brokenness. So as we take just a minute uh, to respond to um, this word, um, can we just reflect as a church You know, how can I be more reflective of Christ's inclusive love in our community? And as a single person, am I being inclusive in my relationships with my brothers and sisters here at New Mercy? Let's think about, as a single person, am I looking at my brother and sister in Christ truly in the way that God sees them? Or am I looking at them 
with my own intentions, with my own motivations, and my own desires. You know, last, you know, two weeks ago was our five-year anniversary, and one of the central themes was community. We have grown so much as a community here, and I see amazing relationships that have come out of it. But it also makes me sad to think that there are those in the fringes who feel like they don't belong, right? Those who are single are looking for that community that represents the nuclear family. You know, if, if the one prayer that I have for New Mercy is that we would not be known for great preaching or great praise bands or gift to people, or that we, I don't even care if we're known to be Church of the Broken. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is when other people see New Mercy, what do they see? I hope that they would be able to see that we are a church that strives to love one another. That in that realness, in that dirtiness of broken relationships, of brokenness of who we are, that we would come to our Father and we would say, God, I don't know how to love this person. I don't know how to love that person. But you command me to. You say that I must love my brother and sister or else I can't even love you. So let's just take a minute to respond. And let's ask God. Let's ask God. You know, increase my heart, increase my capacity to love my brothers and sisters, even the ones that I don't want to love. Let's pray.